In January of 2016, um, we really set out on a, a process uh, of transformation in our church's life. And some of you uh, were with us during that transition. Others of you were not. And sort of the language we used was we are moving from a uh, come and see paradigm to what we would call a go and tell paradigm. And that was perhaps overly simplified, overly simplistic. But the idea was that we weren't just a, uh, a Sunday morning thing because I had come to a realization early on. And, and some of you who were with us in the very, very early days, um, there were high highs and, and really low lows. And through the high highs and the low lows, I was, I was constantly vexed with this thought. And it drove some of you guys crazy because I was like, I, I don't think this is right. Like, I don't think we're doing this right. What's the precedent for this? We're just doing essentially the same things as everybody else, but trying to attract different people. Are we ever going to make a, a dent in the lostness in our city? Are we ever going to make any substantial change in our city? Are we really being formed as Christians with what we're doing? And there was this nagging sense that, that we, no, that we weren't doing anything perhaps unique, that, that our city and our state doesn't need what we were doing. And so in January of 2016, we really started asking questions like, what is the church? What is church planting at its core? Why are we even thinking about it? Why are we planting a church? What should the church do, right? So what is the church? And then what should the church do? And a related question, what is Sunday morning for? Why do we gather on Sunday morning? Does the Bible speak to that at all? Does the Bible speak to what should happen on Sunday mornings? Ultimately, there was a question, what should a New Testament Christian church look like in our unique position in time and space? Answering those questions led us to what we now call the five distinctives, which we rolled out in September of 2017. So in September of 2017, we rolled out these statements, sort of ministry philosophy, sort of explaining who we are, what we do, why we do it, the sorts of things we think that all churches should be about, and we're applying those to our context. Because the Bible, as we immersed ourselves in it and thought through all of those complex questions, we found more than just proof texts and prescriptions. Sure, there were prescriptive texts that teach us about specific parts of church life, but more than anything else, the Bible gives us a story, and that story shapes us. The story of God making all things new through Christ his Son. We see the role that the church plays in redemptive history, and then we begin to understand our role in it. I realized a few weeks ago that we had preached through these distinctives very thoroughly back in 2017, but almost half of you, a little uh, less than that, were not here in 2017. We go through this in our membership curriculum, but many of you have not been through our membership curriculum. One thing I've learned about pastoring from coaching basketball is that players and people don't simply remember what you teach, they remember what you emphasize. When we don't emphasize the right things, we begin to drift into whatever we think is our default mode of being, and few good things happen when we drift. This morning, then, is an opportunity to call a timeout at a crucial moment of the game, if you will. This morning is a morning of emphasis. Generally, I preach through books of the Bible, and on standalone Sundays, when we aren't in a series like last week, this week, and the next couple of weeks, we preach through a different a parable. We preach through a different passage. But this morning, I'm putting my church planter hat on and preaching as one leading a movement, not simply shepherding this congregation. Last week, I clearly and simply preached the gospel in the parable of the two lost sons, perhaps more famously known as the parable of the prodigal son. This week, I'm going to preach to the people that that gospel has formed. I pray you leave three things this morning. Leave with three things this morning. 
I pray you leave informed. I pray you leave empowered. One of my most daunting tasks as a pastor is to remind you that it's not about me. It's to remind you that you can do this. That the Christian life you've been called to live. You are called to make disciples. I'm called to equip you for the ministry. I hear pastors preach on that text a lot, and they jokingly say, you know, when I became a pastor, I left the ministry, right? And it's sort of a shock factor thing trying to get people to tweet them. Um, But it's true, right? There's a very real sense in which I am in vocational gospel ministry so that I can oversee a whole army of people who are living out the gospel in the everyday stuff of life. I pray you leave empowered. I can make disciples. I can be a meaningful part of the local church. I can be a meaningful part of God's mission to the nations. I pray you leave informed. I pray you leave empowered, especially those of you who know this stuff already. And third, I pray that we leave unified. I pray that we leave unified. Uh, We are more unified now than we've been at any moment in our church's history, and we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to drift into our own directions. We want to constantly center, not on each of our preferences for who we ought to be, but on who God has called us to be. And we believe these five distinctives are ways that we can think about being who God's called us to be. So let's jump into our five distinctives this morning, preach through them, and spend some time in prayer afterwards. Look with me in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. What a wonderful place to start. Jesus has been resurrected. Uh, We began the passage this morning in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there is so much here. When we look at the text, Jesus says, all authority in verse 18, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven, all authority on earth, Jesus says, all of it's mine. Therefore, whatever I'm about to say, whatever I'm about to command is of the utmost importance. He begins with the only active verb in the text, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The command is to go, and as you're going in the text, make disciples. How do we make disciples? We proclaim the Christ event to them, that Jesus Christ has come, he's lived, he's died, he's risen again for the remission and forgiveness of sins to make all things right in the world. We proclaim the Christ event. We give the implications of the Christ event. We baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Teach them to obey. Notice Jesus isn't having in mind here, teach them to be able to uh, interpret rightly all that Jesus has commanded. That's important. But they need to do more than just simply know what Jesus has commanded. They need to obey Obey what Jesus has commanded. Because a disciple isn't simply someone who knows the right things, but a disciple is someone who knows the right things so that they can do the right things. The actions that follow their beliefs actually reveal the validity of their faith. Go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, teaching people to live in the way of Jesus. But let's briefly focus on perhaps something we overlook when we read the text. Jesus is instructing the disciples on how to baptize, right? Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does it look like What are the implications, rather, of being baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelm is a uh, pastor and sort of practical theologian, I guess, out in the Pacific Northwest. And, and he talks about this idea of sort of our Trinitarian identity, that when we become Christians, we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And his work is tremendously helpful in thinking through what does it mean that when I'm baptized, I'm baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Romans 6 talks about this idea of being baptized into Christ. What does it mean that we're baptized into the life of God? Well, perhaps being baptized into the Father, we join the Father's family. Being baptized into the Father, we join the Father's family. We become sons and daughters, and we link arms with our brothers and sisters in the church. If we're baptized into the Father, we become His son or daughter. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? I think being baptized into Christ means the life of Christ lives in us. Christ is the servant king. We submit to his rule. We are servants of Christ the Lord. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We have a master. We have a Lord. We have one to whom we must answer, to whom we must submit. But our king, our Lord, is a servant king, a servant Lord. We serve him, but we don't just serve him. We serve in the pattern of him. We serve Christ with our lives, but the way that we serve Christ is manifest in the way we serve those around us. Being baptized into the Father, we are his children. Being baptized into the Son, we are servants. And being baptized into the Spirit, we have received the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That the Holy Spirit has come. That which was dead is now alive. That which is old has gone away, and the new has come, and the life I have is from God, and I've been given a ministry, a ministry of reconciliation, that the Holy Spirit in me is making the appeal of God to the world through me. What a powerful and profound truth that the Almighty God is making His appeal to the world through me, through us. Sometimes we're so used to the Bible that we, we, we miss sort of the glory of that. I was leading an FCA Bible study one time at UC, and a kid who had, I mean, he didn't know much about the Bible at all um, before coming. We read this text together, and that phrase that God is making his appeal to the world through us, through him, like blew his mind. It was like, God loves my roommate, and God could do anything, like, to save my roommate. He could, like, write on the, in the sky, right, hello, God here, I have a message for this guy's roommate. He could send an angel. I mean, he could do anything he wants. He's God. But he's chosen to send us to reach the people in our lives. And in that moment, he was so overwhelmed by the reality that God was with him, God was in him, and that, if his, that his roommates and his teammates and the people around him were placed there by a divine being. Just seeing his eyes light up and seeing him realize how serious this is was, was quite refreshing. Being baptized in the Spirit, right? The Spirit has come to live in us, and He has made us missionaries. He's made us ambassadors of the message of the gospel, this message of reconciliation to God. So let's put this all together. Being baptized in the Father, we are His children. Being baptized into the Son, we are servants. And being baptized into the Spirit, we are missionaries. So this first distinctive is a statement of identity where we're putting all of that together. We live as a family. We've been baptized into God's family. Of missionary, we've been filled with God's spirit. Servants, we take the posture of a servant in our relationship with each other, in our relationship with the world, in the pattern of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So before we go any further thinking about what it means to be the people of God, we have to think about what it means that we've been baptized into the life of God. We are a family of missionary servants. 
When we think about living as a family, we remember that God is our father. Jesus is the big brother that we needed as we preached last week. A good big brother in the parable of the prodigal son would have gone and found his son while he was out there. We're left wanting a good big brother who loves us and pursues us. Jesus is that big brother, born fully God and fully man. He pursued us in our lostness. He has brought us into God's family with his nail-scarred hands. My theology to Dr. Hammett's favorite metaphor for the church is that of the family. Families love each other. Families support each other. Families encourage each other. Families get sick of each other. But families don't leave each other. We live in a moment in history where if you get mad at one particular church, all, you just, there's like thousands to choose from, right? So if you get mad at one church, it's abundantly easy to go to another church. It's one of the things I love about coaching basketball. Like kids don't leave the team. They leave church way quicker than they leave the team. And how sad is that? I'm a Ballard when Gary Ballard is frustrated with me and when he's not. We're in it together until one of us dies. Like, we are a family. We look out for each other. We support each other. Do we get it wrong sometimes? Yeah, and when we do, we seek forgiveness from one another. I want to say, church, we don't need anything else to do this well. We don't need more leaders to do this well. But we do need more leaders. We don't need more formally titled leaders to do this well. We need leaders who understand that leadership is more about love than position. We need people who are willing to talk to each other, willing to love each other, willing to bear one another's burdens, willing to forgive one another. We live as a family. We don't enough. We're better than we were, but we're not as good as where we'll be by the grace of God. We are servants of Christ. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not pick up his cross and follow me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. We serve Christ and him alone. And we serve in the pattern of Christ, the risen king, who didn't expect everyone to dote over him, even though he was the one worthy of all praise and worship. Do I expect to serve, or do I always expect to be served? Do I always expect my ideology and my thoughts to win the day? Consider the example of Christ. We are servants of Christ, the risen king, and we are missionaries. We've been filled with God's Spirit. We are given the ministry of reconciliation. And because God's Spirit dwells in us, we can do this. From the very beginning, one of the things I've always emphasized in our congregation is like, we're not that impressive. Like, the Lord is putting together a church that by His grace will impact many, many lives. But it's not because of how impressive we are or how easy things are for us. It's because His Spirit dwells in us, and we are learning to rely not on our own understanding, but rely on the Spirit. Therefore, I can say with confidence to you, who you might think, I can't make disciples, I can't share the gospel, I can't do this, I can't do that. Because God's Spirit dwells in you, you can. That's our first distinctive. We live as a family of missionary servants. Our second distinctive moves to our worship life. All of life is worship before God. Romans chapter 12 makes clear that what God desires from us is not simply attendance at a worship event where we focus on God, but it's a life lived in the presence of God, a life poured out for the glory of God. But the Bible absolutely presupposes and prescribes in many places that God's people would gather together to worship Him. And the only time throughout the week where we're all gathered together is this Sunday morning worship service. So we need more than just pragmatism on the whys and hows of what we do. We need a theology, meaning how does our knowledge of God inform why we gather? So that each of us, from the pastor to the person who comes a couple times a month, can say, we gather for these reasons. Who teaches us what worship is? I would argue in our day, folks who often don't know what worship is. Pastors are too scared to preach on what worship essentially is because worship is the tool they use to keep people in their church. I hear pastors with PhDs 
saying things like, oh, the preaching was great, but the worship wasn't that good. Or the preaching wasn't very good, but the worship was outstanding. They're using worship as a, another word for what? Music. Music. And if you don't think that's a bad thing, I would remind you, I was teaching an undefeated youth when we were first getting started on a Tuesday night, and we asked the kids, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? They said, music. Because in their context, in their cultural situation, for many of them, gospel music was a genre of music. There was no context that the gospel was actually a word that we use to describe the things of God. So this family, these kids, many of whom had a lot of church experience, when asked what is the gospel, oh, it's music. And I think many of our kids would answer the same thing, except instead of saying gospel, because white people generally use different language, we just say worship. Worship. What is worship? Music. It's the thing they do before Mason tells us we can go upstairs. How can we think more theologically about worship? To many, worship is primarily about me. It's about my self-expression. It's about me finding my felt needs in this music. But worship in the Bible is never about me. It involves me, but it's not about me. From the little altar that we read in Exodus, the made of dirt, right? that precedes the tabernacle through the temple into the New Testament worship in the temple and then into early Christian worship outside of the temple in homes and catacombs and wherever they may be. Christian worship has always been about God. Everything about the tabernacle, everything about the temple, everything that gave life to the Christian community, their whole conception of worship was birthed in a context where worship and everything about it is focusing on who God is. Remember the tabernacle that we went through word for word several weeks ago. Everything about the tabernacle teaches us something about God. So church, our worship services matter. Our worship services should immerse us in God's story week in and week out. Our worship services should hold up a vision of a God who is great and holy and awesome and powerful and wonderful, yet also intimate, who's with us, who bears with us, who loves us, and who in Christ cheers us on. Our services then should immerse us in God's story and slowly but surely the needles of our hearts begin to point in a different direction. I want to make the case that the world is trying to form us a certain type of way. That the, the world is trying to make us into people that are a little sort of anti-Christ and not in sort of the eschatological sense, but in the sense of saying we're not like Christ. The world wants us to be consumers. The world wants us to see people as people to be used. The world wants us to see religion as a means to our ends. The world should t tells us that we should want to be successful. The world tells us that we want more and more and more, but God tells us that his story is true. God tells us that people are meant to be loved and not used. God tells us that we're filled up by pouring ourselves out for other people. We need the church to counteract the formation that's happening out there. We need to hear the true story of God, and we need to immerse ourselves in that story so that we don't begin to believe that life is all about comfort, that life is all about success, that life is all about these sorts of things. Life is about knowing the glory of God and the glory of God being made known among the nations. Jesus teaches us that the Father is drawing worshipers to himself who worship in spirit and truth. There are many texts in the scriptures that teach us about worship. 1 Corinthians 14 gives us some correctives and some teaching on Christian worship. Hebrews 10 is where we find the command not to forsake gathering with one another, that we may stir one another on to love and good deeds. And Romans 12 reminds us that worship is more than just what happens when we gather, but it is not less than what happens when we gather. Church, Christian worship is formative. Christian worship tells the Christian story. Christian worship is emotional still, though. It grips our hearts, it grips our minds, and it grips our bodies, but it doesn't manipulate them. It shows us God, and we respond in one. Wonder. 
Our Sunday morning worship services then should reflect and rehearse God's story. And I don't know about you or where you grew up or how you grew up, but I grew up at a moment in the life of the church in the U.S. where it was just being ripped apart by the worship wars. Anyone heard of the worship wars? Yeah? Thank God they're almost over. That, that, that sort of the traditionalists would argue that we need things this way. And then the younger folks came up and said, but we're never going to reach our friends this way. Like our, 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 our friends, the people in our lives, like they're never going to come to your, your boring old church, right? And so there's this sort of back and forth and churches begin to split and then churches begin to have two services, one for older people and one for younger people. And then all of these responses sort of to this crisis of preference, but underneath that crisis of preference is a crisis of theology because God's people weren't leading in teaching about worship, we were responding to the felt needs of parishioners. It was an arms race to keep as many people as we can in dying organizations. But church worship is not a commodity. Worship is not a genre of music. Worship tells God's story. Worship does God's story. Worship invites us into God's story. It can look so many different ways. Church, our Sunday mornings are not a finished product. I've moved us slowly this way, building a theology of worship because I think it's necessary. But now that we have so many of the basics done, we will continue to develop our Sunday morning liturgy. We will continue developing it in ways that better tell God's story and reflect God's story and immerse us in God's story, ultimately pointing our hearts to God's kingdom. How can I know how I should live unless I know what story I'm a part of? Church, may we worship in forms that are timeless and distinctively Christian. May we never have sacred cows that tear our family apart. May we be willing to learn and grow and transform as we think about what it means to have Sunday morning worship services. Third, distinctive. We've thought about our identity. We live as a family of missionary servants. We've thought about our worship life. We worship in forms that are distinctively Christian. Third, we think about our relation to the world outside. Outside these walls, right? Is that truism? I want to make the case that the Great Commission that we read in Matthew 28 assumes our obedience to the Great Commandment in Matthew 22. If you have your Bibles with you, flip over there uh, briefly. It's a, uh, a text that's familiar, uh, as with many of the texts this morning. But remember, it's what we emphasize this morning. In Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? That question would be quite revealing uh, of Jesus' theology, of what he thinks. Jesus responds brilliantly, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, or hang, some might say, all the law and the prophets. Jesus is teaching on these commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, in all your mind. A second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, on those two commandments hang the entire Mosaic law. On those two commandments hang the entire prophets. Meaning, if you don't understand this, then you're completely missing the rest of it. God's desire for us is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We never graduate from that. We don't get the great commandment right and then graduate to the great commission. To make disciples. Okay, I'm loving people well, now I can stop doing that. I can move on to this, or I can let that drift, because the tendency is always going to be there 
to, to stop loving people well, to stop giving people the benefit of the doubt, to stop listening before you hear, to stop seeking their good, to stop doing all these things. But we must hold on to that reality that we are to love the Lord our God and love our neighbors as ourselves. What does it mean? Let's zone in just for a moment on how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? How do you love yourself? And the Bible is here assuming that you should love yourself. You shouldn't have a misplaced love of yourself. You shouldn't have a love of yourself that makes all other loves look like your love of cats, which no one loves. Just kidding, cat people. You should love yourself in how? In a way that provides for yourself. Why do you eat? Because you love yourself. Because you know that you need to eat. You need sustenance. You need food. We breathe because we love ourselves. We exercise because we should love ourselves and we should take care of ourselves. We, 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 should, we should do these things out of love, a right love for ourselves. We're seeking our good and seeking our survival and seeking our health. In the same way that we sort of instinctively do these things, God's calling us to love others that way. Love others instinctively. Like, live in such a way that your first response to someone is a response of love, is seeking their good for them on their behalf. We are called to think about our neighbor's problems as seriously as we think about our problems. God intends to use his people to expand his kingdom. We are called to be agents of love, seekers of justice, and makers of peace. We are called to be ambassadors of God's kingdom, as we've talked about from 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors of reconciliation. What do we mean when we say God's kingdom? Well, Jesus is the king, and a kingdom is just wherever a king reigns. In a sense, Jesus reigns over the whole world, but we know that evil still exists in many forms. We have this sense, all of us, that, that things aren't as they should be. This plays itself out in politics. This plays itself out in relationships. This plays itself out in so many ways. But Christ reigns in his people, the church. So God's kingdom is not found in any earthly government. It's not manifest in any decisions of such. But rather, God's kingdom is found where men and women are obedient to God himself. So the church, we're the people who demonstrate the present and coming reality of God's rule and reign. The church, we are the people who are living in such a way that others might say, that is what it looks like when you live Jesus' way. That is what it looks like when you submit your life to Christ the King. And we are meant to be a sort of foretaste that when you're looking at the life of the church, you're catching a glimpse of eternity. You're catching a glimpse of how things will be when evil is no more. When we demonstrate the reality of God's rule over our lives, our neighbors benefit in tangible ways and our gospel witness remains intact. We can no longer assume that the people who live next to us, the people who work next to us, know that God loves them, God cares for them, and God has sent his son as a sacrifice for their sins. People outside of God's family need to know that God loves them. They need to have a glimpse of what it looks like when people live God's way. And we are meant to be that picture. We are meant to be this beautiful picture of broken people who are submitting to Christ the King. And because we submit to him, we live a different way. We live for the glory of others. Church, we've got to leverage our resources, our time, our talents, the things that we're good at, and our treasures, our money, and all that we have in such a way that the love of God is sensed, the love of God is felt, and the message of God is spread. We were worshiping in the Clay Center when we first got started in a planetarium. It was a nightmare, but it was fun in many ways. And we renovated the Risen City Center, and we spent pretty much all of our money working towards building a community center that our neighbors might benefit from, that the church might 
dwell in, right? That we might meet the needs of people outside of God's family. It was a difficult time. It was a glorious time. It was all of the above. I hope it was a foundational time where we will constantly, as a church, not think, what's the next best move for Res alone, but we'll think about the health of the church and how can we show God's love to our neighbors in real, tangible ways. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, God's people are always blessed to be a blessing. And our questions we must continually ask is, are the way, is the way we steward our finances, our time, and our treasures, is that representative, is that reflective of God's love for our neighbors? We leverage our resources for the good of our neighbors. Fourth distinctive, and we'll move a little quicker. We help plant new churches from new believers. We help plant new churches from new believers. I'm not going to go there, but in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, if you're taking notes, in Acts 17, 1 through 7, we see a sort of skeleton uh, at how the church at Thessalonica was planted. Essentially, Paul and his missionary team would find a synagogue. They would preach the gospel. They would see a response to the gospel, many times good, many times not so good. But the gospel would form a people. They would establish and equip leaders to help oversee those people. They would leave the church in good hands and they would exit, maintaining a relationship with those people. We see a simple pattern in New Testament church planting. The gospel goes out, disciples are made, and churches are planted. Now, Paul fills in this skeleton in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2 in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 1 and verses 7 through 12. He talks about how he tenderly cared for the people of Thessalonica. He talked about how he lived among them and worked with his hands, right? He says he shared not only the gospel, but he shared his whole life with people. That Paul, the greatest church planner ever, wasn't always fully funded. He says, in fact, Philippians 4.13, which we love to quote, Paul's talking about, I know what it's like to have a lot of money. I know what it's like to have no money. I can do all these things through Christ, you know? I know what it's like to have a wealthy business person alongside me, Paul would say, in funding my ministry, and I know what it's like to get to Thessalonica and say, I'm going to have to make tents, <laughs> right? And embrace the reality of living among people, of dwelling among people, of sharing his life with others, thus verifying and attesting to the gospel message that he preached then they believed this gospel message in this place. Leaders were equipped and established, and then his missionary team would move on. This is what we see in the New Testament. Missionary teams working to plant the gospel among a people. They live among them. They work beside them, and they love them. And then the gospel planted begins to give birth to the church, and they sort of, give, they sort of um, work with this baby church for a season. Sometimes it would be a short season in the New Testament. Other times it would be a much longer season. And then this missionary team would leave, and they would go to a new place. And the people who planted the church weren't always the pastors of the church. I'm not scrapping everything we've done or everything we know, but I am challenging us to move towards a more biblical picture of church planting. A picture of catalyzing church planting that is a result of sharing the gospel and making disciples and planting our lives among people. Not just saying, hey, we have service at 11, see you there, and have a big song and dance show that other people think is cool and they come to. I'm more interested in new churches in neighborhoods throughout our state, uh, for instance, that are formed because new people have heard the gospel, they've believed the gospel, and they're gathering together as the people formed by the gospel. And then we, together with them, are learning what that looks like, how to shepherd those people well, how to mobilize them for further missions in their context. I believe that a church planted like that with 10 new believers has a better net impact for the kingdom of God than a church of 500 people that 95% of them came from other churches. So the question that we must ask is how can we responsibly think about making disciples and planting churches, especially as cultural tides seem to go against us, whatever that means. We want to catalyze this sort of church planting. Worship team, go ahead and come up onto the stage as we move towards our final distinctive. 
Flip over in your Bible to Revelation. The other day I was talking to Pastor Seth and I said uh, something about Revelations with an S on it. And he said, oh, the liberty's coming out of him now. <laughs> um, so that was just kind of funny. Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 9 through 17 of Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. In this moment, John, on this island, has this vision where he sees all nations. And remember how young the church is here. It's mostly a Hebrew thing. It's mostly a Jewish thing. But in this vision, he's seeing all sorts of people, people that he's never even seen before, languages that he's never even heard before, and they're all before the throne of God. Who, who are these people? You could argue about the meaning of the Great Tribulation. You could say, well, that's here or that's there. I'm not going to make a case one way or the other. But I will say this. It's easy to believe that we're not in a tribulation now when you never experience it. When you meet brothers and sisters from persecuted places, you can quickly see how much being a Christian will cost you. You're profoundly changed when you're reading the Bible with someone who doesn't have a pointer finger because it was chopped off when the authorities found out they were a Christian. You're different when you meet someone who's lost their job and their families have left them because they've claimed the name of Christ. These people, there are more today than any point in world history who face tribulation for following Christ. These folks are my heroes of the faith. In the U.S., you still get benefits for being a Christian. Housing allowance for me, right? Tax-free. Sometimes we lose our privileges and we think we're just dying. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters are dying. And I think about the peoples that have lost everything, and I picture them out in that crowd. I picture them before the throne of God, healed and restored, and seeing the prize 
of their salvation, Jesus, who walks with them, and who walks with me, and who walks with you, and all things sad, as Tolkien has famously said, have become untrue, and the Lamb dwells within us, and He is the light of the city, and all is as it was meant to be. Christ rules, and the nations are before Him. Church, every nation will be represented around the throne of God, but we know this morning that there are thousands of people groups who have yet to hear the message of the gospel. They have not heard that Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, came, lived, died, and rose in their place. And if we aren't going, no one is going to tell them. So, church, will we realize the urgency of this moment? Will we believe the truth that here we have no lasting city? Will we believe the truth that one day the Lord will return? Will we believe the truth that the gospel is exclusive, that the nations must hear, and how will they not hear if someone does not preach? And how will someone preach if someone does not go? Church, we must go. In everything we do, we must be cognizant of God's eternal timeline, that the nations will hear the gospel and respond, and all nations will be around the throne of God, and that's why we go. So what now? Those are our five distinctives. We live as a family of missionary servants. We're formed by Christian worship that is timeless and hopefully distinctively Christian. We leverage our resources for the good of our neighbors. We think about how we can plant new churches from new believers. And we help take the gospel to the nations. I hope you're informed, I hope you're equipped, I hope you're energized, and I hope we rally around this vision of worship, community, and mission. So what are the metrics? What do we need to count as I close? Attendance doesn't tell us this whole story. Ask questions that are qualitative, not just quantitative. Am I growing in love for the people in my life? When is the last time I, had, I told someone, forgive me, I was wrong there? I was in a meeting like seven and eight days, a, a, a week is how we would say that in English. Like a week ago, like I was in a meeting and I, I just, I, I messed up, man. I said, man, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong here. And I realized, man, I, that's, I need to do that more often. I'm sorry. I messed up. When is the last time I asked for forgiveness? When is the last time I granted forgiveness? Right. Am I growing in love for the people in my life? Am I assuming the posture of a servant? But do I listen first or talk first? That will help me think about where I may be there. Simple questions. Am I meeting new people? When's the last time before church or after church I've gone and talked to someone that I did not know? Because if we won't talk to people we don't know in this room, how are we ever going to have meaningful conversations outside of it with people that we don't know? Am I being generous with my time? Am I being generous with the things I'm good at? Am I being generous with my money? Are my desires, the things I want out of life, are they being conformed to God's will? Am I a little more humble than I used to be? Am I more teachable than I used to be? Am I less quarrelsome than I used to be? Do I focus on things that are good and beautiful and true, or do I spend my entire life scrolling and scrolling and arguing and scrolling and arguing and scrolling and arguing? Are the things I want when I die, right? Is it to see who has the most stuff, or my, are my ultimate goals being shaped by the gospel? Am I attending church regularly and sacrificially? The Christian life is more than that, but it's not less than that. Am I willing to be inconvenienced for my local church? As a friend of mine wrote an article about this week. So much of life is just showing up, being present, saying, here I am, whatever you need. We got to continue to develop metrics that help us think about how we're doing in these five distinctives. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you're a part of this church. May God use us in profound ways. Let's pray. Father, um, 
we confess that uh, we tend to do things that we want to do, and we tend to do things the way we think we should do them. And Lord, uh, first of all, this morning we thank you for showing us um, some of these things from your word in our church's life. I'm thankful for the transformation that we've seen over these last couple of years. But Lord, I pray that you will continue to shape us and mold us. Lord, make us a family of missionary servants. Make us a people who gather around your word, around your table, under your lordship in worship, that are formed by your worship. Lord, make us a people who are generous, who we actually love. We're, we're, outdo, we're trying to outdo each other in love. Lord, how can we love each other? How can we love the people outside these walls? How can we be a blessing to our city? How can we show the rule and reign of God in our city? Help us, Lord, to plant new churches from new believers, Lord. Lord, I get so discouraged and so frustrated. We feel like a voice in the wilderness, God. But, but Lord, help us to plant new churches from new believers. And Lord, repopulate your kingdom again, Lord. We trust that future Christian leaders aren't even Christians yet. We trust that the resources that the church will need to push us ahead in the 21st century, they're not even believers yet, Lord. Help us to have faith that future pastors, future worship pastors, future children's teachers, future all these things, they're out in the harvest, and we must go and share the gospel and raise up leaders. And Father, help us to have a burning passion for the nations. Lord, break our hearts that the, with the fact that there are a billion people on this planet today who have never heard the name Jesus. Lord, help us go short-term trips, medium-term trips, hands-on one-year experiences, journeyman terms for three years. Lord, I pray that people in our church, when they retire, will say, all right, it's time to go. I pray that college students, when they graduate, will say, okay, I'm going to go and use my gifts in a place where the gospel needs to be heard and Jesus, the King of Kings, needs to be named. Father, in these moments, bind us together in love, bind us together in unity, and maybe even more than all of these, well, not more than all of these, Lord, but bind us together in hope. All change, all transformation happens because we believe it can. Lord, you are alive, and you are our hope, and we believe that you can use us greatly because of that. In Jesus' name we pray.